Good morning, church. As you know, we've stepped out of our series on 1 Peter uh, that we called Stand a couple of weeks ago as the pandemic kind of took over our lives and the way that we do normal life. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been thinking about the Christian response to the pandemic. Uh, We've talked about how withdrawal and how the way that we respond to an epidemic really says a lot about our faith. Last week, we talked about lament and how lament is the trajectory of, of, of suffering and of expressing grief that keeps us in, in touch with God. Uh, this morning, I want to continue that thought by talking about how, how we deal with suffering and, and what is our response to suffering. As you know, that's one of the things that Peter addressed in 1 Peter. It was suffering. In fact, when you read 1 Peter, one of the things that you begin to see is that Peter just assumes suffering in the world. If you're a human, and we are, and if you live in the world, and we do, then you will suffer even if you are a Christian. And if church tradition is correct, Peter himself was crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to be crucified like Jesus. He was crucified upside down just a couple of months after the great fire of Rome in 64 AD. But before he died, before he was crucified in Rome, he wrote this letter to the church in general. And in the very middle of that letter, he writes these words, chapter 3, verse 13, "...who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed." Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere, some other translations have the word sanctify, Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Peter assumes suffering. And his answer to suffering is to revere or to sanctify. It is to make holy, to set apart, to make Jesus the preeminent of everything that's important in your heart, to to revere Christ in your heart. In other words, to fill your heart with Christ. And then be ready to give an answer, to be able to speak and explain the hope that you have. And so if you were to ask Peter, he would say that suffering is inevitable And that suffering is a big deal. Suffering is inevitable, and suffering is a big deal. Suffering is such a big deal that it can even demolish the existence of faith. Let me give you a couple of examples. From the humanist, secularist world, uh, some years ago I saw a bumper sticker that said, God is all-loving, God is all-powerful, and God is all-knowing. Pick two. God is all-love, God is all-powerful, God is all-knowing. Pick two. It was a punch that was thrown in the direction of the Christian faith in light of suffering in the world, some of the suffering that seems gratuitous at times. And so basically what the bumper sticker was communicating is that suffering exists because God is all-loving and He's all-powerful, but He doesn't know that we are suffering. Or God is all-powerful and all-knowing, but He doesn't care that we suffer, and therefore He is not all-loving. You get the picture. Another example, and this one is one I think hits a little bit closer to home because it's about us. We saw in the psalm last week, Psalm 30, that there was this misconception about God and God's place in the world and suffering. The psalmist says in the middle of Psalm 30, In my prosperity I said, I will not be moved. And the idea there is that I'm so close to God, God is so close to me, God's never going to allow anything because God loves me, nothing bad is ever going to happen to me. And then life happens because suffering is inevitable. Life happens and it sweeps the legs right out from under us and we find ourselves in danger of not trusting God, of not believing God, and pulling back from God and His promises. This was something that C.S. Lewis wrote about. Uh, You know, uh, in his later years, he, he was married to Joy Davidson. He thought that he would be a bachelor all of his life. 
And then this American, a writer, who he had corresponded with, comes to England, they fall in love, and they get married. And they're married for about four years until cancer takes Joy Davidson away from him. And in writing the book, A Grief Observed, he writes these words, and I quote, Not that I, I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about Him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but, so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. End of quote. I say again, suffering is inevitable and suffering is a big deal. And what we need in in our thinking about suffering is an entry point in Scripture, and there are lots of them. I'm going to choose John 11 as our entry point today. Uh, Immediately when we get to John 11, we're going to enter into a crisis. We we find a crisis. Verse 1, now a man named Lazarus was sick. And his sisters, Martha and Mary, very famous to us, his sisters do the right thing, and they send a message to Jesus. Verse 3, Lord, the one you love is sick. And Jesus does love Lazarus, and he does love his sisters, Martha and Mary. In fact, John says that explicitly in verse 5, that he loves Lazarus and Martha and Mary. And as the neighbors, uh, later down the, down the road, as the neighbors observe Jesus grieving and weeping at the tomb of, Luz, uh, of Lazarus, they remark, see how he loved him. That's verse 36. But Jesus who loves them, the Jesus who truly loves Lazarus and Martha and Mary, does not go to Bethany immediately. And the Jesus who loves them in not going to Bethany immediately gives the opportunity for Lazarus to die. And that he does. And this brings us to, I think, an important intellectual reconciliation that needs to be made in our struggle with the existence of God and the existence of suffering. And it's this, that love does not disallow the existence of suffering. That love does not disallow the existence of suffering. You know, one of the first hurdles to overcome in our thinking about suffering in the Christian faith in God and Jesus, the Spirit, is this. If God loves us, then He's not going to allow us to suffer. If God loves us, then we will not suffer. But then our reality, as we begin to think about it, overtakes us in our experience, because we do live in a fallen world. We live in a broken world. We live in a world where there is pain and shattered dreams and and death and and heartache and, and brokenness. The world is thus, and thus have we made it. When sin entered the world, it brought a lot of terrible, horrific things with it. But love does not disallow the existence of suffering. I think about the time when my son Jordan was, was, a, was a young boy, uh, three or four years old. Um, he hated needles and would fight to the death, would fight with all of his strength to keep from getting a shot. But he was also at the same time susceptible to horrible throat infections and would need to be dosed up with antibiotics from time to time. And so Ellen and I would take him to the doctor. She would go to the examination room with him. And then I would be called back a couple of minutes later in order to hold him down while he got a shot and was fighting for his life, and at the same time begging me to not let that mean old nurse stick his arm with a needle. From my point of view, suffering the needle was necessary for the antibiotic to get into him to heal him. And so he was allowed, uh, he was allowed to suffer. He was allowed to, to go through that, that moment 
because of the good that would happen to him. <coughs> the New Testament is, is full of examples where the God of love allows the suffering to come and sometimes to park itself for a while in our life. There's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's the apostles at the beginning of Acts who are threatened and beaten. There's Stephen at the beginning of Acts who becomes the first Christian martyr as he's pulled out of, outside the wall of the city of Jerusalem and stoned to death. Paul is dragged out of town on the first missionary expedition and he's stoned outside the city and left for dead. And there's more and more and more as you read through Acts and the rest of the New Testament. Back in John 11, Jesus loves Lazarus, but Lazarus dies and the sisters grieve. And it's here that we meet the next aspect of the story, and that is love meets us in lament. When we are lamenting, love meets us. When Jesus finally arrives, Lazarus has been in the tomb for about four days. Martha runs out to meet him, and she says out loud, she cries out to him what is at the core and the heart of her suffering and her lament. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I know even now God will give you whatever you ask. A few minutes later, Mary goes to Jesus and says the same thing. Verse 32, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And John tells us that Jesus, in the midst of all of this grief, in the midst of all of this suffering, becomes deeply moved and troubled in his own spirit. And he asks everyone around him, where's Lazarus's tomb? Where, where have you laid him? And they take him, and it's here that we read some very startling words. This is the creator of the heavens and the earth. There was nothing made that was made without him. He is the Word. He is God. And yet, John 11, verse 35, Jesus wept. It's very poignant. Jesus knows how this story is going to end. Lazarus is going to come back to life. But still, the Lord, the Creator of heaven and earth, weeps. Love meets us in lament. As disciples of Jesus, one of the things that we need to know is that we never weep alone. We never weep alone. Our tears are always going to be mingled with the tears of the Lord who loves. And Jesus just tears up at the thought of what has happened to someone he loves. Jesus weeps at the death of a beloved friend, even though he knows the end of the story. And it tells us a little bit about what Isaiah was trying to, to do when he described the Messiah, Jesus, as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus does know what will happen to Lazarus in just a couple of minutes, but it does not stop him from being united with the grief stricken. And Peter reminds us that by our wounds, by his wounds, our wounds are healed. He knows all of our wounds. He knows all of our heartaches. He knows all of our brokenness, the very core of our souls. And it's here that Jesus asks for the stone to be rolled back. And he tells Lazarus to come out and the beloved Lazarus the dead Lazarus comes out from the tomb and Jesus tells the people standing around to take the grave clothes off of him and to let him go. And this is where we come to the last observation, the last aspect of this story, and it's this, we meet love in lament. Not only does love meet us in lament, but it's in lament that we meet love. You know, um, one, of the, one of the things that you see when you come into the church offices uh, you'll see that there is a vending machine, a Coke machine. I get thirsty from time to time during the day. I go to the machine. I, I want something to drink. I, to drink. I swipe my debit card. I slide a dollar bill or two into the machine, and I get, in my case, a bottle of cold, cold water. Thirst is taken care of. 
Uh, others will go to the machine desire, desiring something else, like a Coke or a Dr. Pepper. They'll swipe their card, insert their money, and out pops what they ask for. Now, sometimes I think that we treat God, or at least we think about God in this manner, that He is the means to an end. That we, we give God a request, we pray to Him, and then God answers that prayer the way that we want. In this story, in the story of John 11, we are finding more than a story on just the power of Jesus over death. It is really a story about the worth of Jesus, about the place of Jesus, about Jesus becoming set apart in our hearts. It is about Jesus becoming the preeminent one. It's about Jesus being revered in our hearts and how that comes into all of our experiences, good or bad. Think about the space in the story between the death of Lazarus and the raising of Lazarus from the dead. In that space where, where Jesus is meeting Martha, there is this remarkable conversation that takes place with them. Jesus, as you know, just doesn't go to Bethany, go to the tomb, and get on with the business of raising Lazarus from the dead. What he does is he enters into a conversation with Martha where he tells her that he is the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will never die. And then Jesus asks her, do you believe this? Now it's kind of a remarkable and odd conversation unless what it is that Jesus is communicating in this moment is that he is the ultimate answer to her lament even more so than her brother coming back from the dead. We sanctify Jesus in our hearts, the resurrection and the life. It's not as if her grief doesn't matter. It does. Jesus weeps too. But Jesus is more than someone who could have kept her brother alive. Jesus is more than someone who could have saved her from the Kleenex. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. It is in her grief that she comes to realize that Jesus is the treasure beyond all treasures, the gift beyond all gifts, who not only is beside her in all of her grief, but is doing something beyond extraordinary to undo everything that has ever gone wrong in the world. And in this way, her suffering is not a stumbling block, but a building block to her faith. She knows that she is loved by the one who is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is not the means to an end. He is the end. And we know that Jesus is, is all-knowing. He comes to us knowing our pain. He comes to us knowing our heartbreak. And it's Jesus' tears in John 11 that tells us that he's all-knowing, that nothing you go through escapes his sight. But the cross of Jesus also tells us that He is all-loving, that, he is, that he, is not just, he is not just fulfilling out of duty uh, something that has been placed on Him, but in love He is staying on the cross when, when there was nothing else that could have kept Him on it. Jesus' cross and taking care, taking our burden, taking our laments, our grief, our sickness, our sorrows, our iniquities, our transgressions on Himself reminds us and tells us that He is all-loving. And it's the resurrection, the, the defeat of anything ultimately that can harm us that tells us that He is all-powerful. And this is why we, take the, we make the most of every moment. We take 
every day as a day to draw near, near to Him. He is the one that fills our heart and goes through the suffering with us. Let's pray. Father, of all the things that we're thankful for, of home and our freedoms, health, the, the incomes that we have, the friendships that we have, out of all of this, we are most thankful for the Christ who comes to us not only on the mountaintops, but in the valleys and in the shadows. And in our lament, does not turn away from us, but comes into our lament with his own tears. We are grateful for that kind of love, Father. And we're grateful for the way that he sustains us, even in the most heartbreaking moments and experiences in this life. And we do not want to treat suffering in an unrealistic, dishonest way. We want through lament, Father, to tell you everything that is on our hearts. And we expect and anticipate that we will, we will lament and grieve and weep, not alone, but in your presence. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be blessed this week. Amen.